You're listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The Seventh Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at Seventh Row with the number seven spelled out or online at seventh-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-Row.com. because one of the things that I felt was missing in both of them is that like in the text you have Richard is either opening all of the scenes or they have people talking and talking and then at some point they say something which is basically like we're in trouble and then Richard appears Uh and that's his entrance and that seems like a really good opportunity in film to have like a big like to have a smash cut to and here he is Mm-hmm. And I felt like you lost a lot of the, like, just the way in which Richard enters and exits and when he enters and exits in both of the films. Yeah. I mean, I think in the Olivier, they didn't, it, it, I think that's ties back to a function of the time period that the Olivier is coming from, that they didn't know how to do that stuff yet. You know, that it's like, yeah, Olivier just kind of walks into a pre-existing set shot that they're all in and he's like hello i'm in the scene now because they didn't they hadn't quite figured out how to do that yet you know um but yeah in the mckellen you don't get it because even like one of my you know time coming back to what we were talking about before about the scene at the dining table where uh, where he comes in with lady anne where she's in that red dress it's a really first. I'm, I didn't say this before, but I love that Lady Anne is in that scene. I've never seen her in that scene before, and I think it makes all the sense in the world. But he just kind of walks into frame. Um, you have him. I'm trying to think about, but yeah, there aren't. You, you're right that you don't get a lot of them being like, "Boom, here's Richard. It's Richard time now." Um, yeah, that is kind of a missed opportunity. Well, it's been 20 years, so the next one will have. We, this is kind of a guy. This is a blueprint for what the next Richard the Third film adaptation will have. Oh God, we'll see how bad Benedict Cumberbatch is. <laughs> That's true. Oh yes, uh, I like how you're both. You're both wincing. In, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm giddy and excited to see what's going to happen next. Oh, well, you know they made one, right? You know they made it. It's it's oh, done. Oh, I know. Oh, I know. Yeah. I know. Is it out? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I'm very excited. It's aired it. in the UK. It hasn't aired here. It'll be on DVD in the middle of June. I mean, one thing that is interesting about the just the way in which breaking the fourth wall is that a lot of the time when you put Shakespeare on film and you have to deal with how do you deal with soliloquies, mm-hmm. um, people like to turn them into voiceover. And uh-huh. it's interesting that they <laughs> okay, yeah. sometimes it works. But I think it's interesting that n- that n- neither of these films made that choice ever. But this is a per- uh, this is a play. It, look, it's like Hamlet, and then it's a play that's peculiarly invested in the relationship between its main character and its audience, right? Yeah, like yeah. you can't really do a voiceover in Richard because voice because these soliloquies are not intended to convey information; they're intended to develop right. a relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is like a picture, picture that monologue. Uh, I will spy my shadow. Uh, um, uh, uh, let me buy a glass, you know, whatever that monologue. Where he's the, the shadow as I pass. Yes. 
Yeah, the the hospital hallway monologue. Like, imagine if that was a voiceover and he's just walking down the hallway, shaking hands and kissing babies. And then he does a little bell kick at the end, like with no. And it's just his thought like that would have been so bad. But it is true that it's like weirdly a voiceover. Like, I mean, I, I don't like, you know, it's Hamlet doing to be or not to be in a blockbuster like voiceover is a nightmare. Right. But it makes so much more. I mean, maybe it's part of being an antagonistic character that it's like you want to see the words coming out of his mouth so you can be like, oh, you son of a bitch. You mm-hmm. are just the worst. As opposed to him thinking. Like it. Frank Underwood, right? Kind of, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that, like the Underwood, right. On House of Cards, it wouldn't make, it wouldn't have the same effect if it was a voiceover, if it was like yeah. his narration. Because him taking the hubris to tell you, like, mm-hmm. I know you just saw that, but in case you missed it, <laughs> I killed her husband and she hated my guts and I'm still going to marry her. And yeah. if you don't like that, that's a real shame because we have two hours to go. Come on, the Richard the Third <laughs> super fun time ride. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I hate this guy. Will someone stab this guy already? And then you're like, oh, Jimmy McNulty, you're our hero. It's going to be great. But you're also like, he's like, was ever woman in this humor wooed? Was ever woman in this humor won? And you're like, Yeah. Like, wow, that's actually really impressive. Awful, right? but impressive. <laughs> You're the worst, but I do need to give you credit. That was pretty yeah. smooth. That was pretty solid. That was a good effort. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you know, the other, have you, have you seen the movie, what's the, oh, what's it called? Um, it's a German horror movie. Oh, Funny Games. Have either of you seen that movie? No, I haven't. I'm weird... not a Haneke fan. Oh, I, I have, I'm, I watch like no movies, but my, Actually, Liam Billingham, who is another bane of my existence, who writes into No Holds Barred all the time, he made me watch it with subtitles. And I generally don't watch movies with subtitles because I'm an idiot American again. But uh, this whole movie, it's like a horror movie that plays with like meta tropes. So like they're torturing this person psychologically and the murderer like turns to the camera and is like, this is messed up, right? And then you watch the scene again. But like there's this what makes it work in that horror context is a complicity that Mm -hmm. you're like all of a sudden it's not the heroine it's not the victims it's not like it's not the protagonists in this movie that you you know it's every horror movie you've ever seen where they're on vacation at their summer house and then all the horrible stuff happens it's nothing groundbreaking so you've you've seen them like unpack the car and get in their vacation house but it's the villain who looks at you and is like this is super messed up right what a shame. Let's see what happens next. And you're like, I don't want to know you. Don't look at me. I don't want to be a part of your thing. And I think it reminded me, both of these Richards reminded me of that, where it's like, oh, oh, I no, no, I want to take Lady Anne's side. I want to take Richmond's side. But Richard's like, no, you're riding with me. Here we go. Come on. Let's see what happens next. And I think that complicity brings you, is what ties you into what he's doing. So even when he's yelling for a horse, you're like, oh man, this guy has been on a journey and I kind of want him to get him to get shot in the head and dive into a pile of flaming tires. But on the other hand, what a shame if that happens. Okay. We'll find out what happens next. <laughs> um, I think the McKellen Richard surprising. No one. I like the McKellen Richard better. Um, Wait, you? <laughs> no, he's so much more charismatic, mm-hmm. which I think brings you into that vileness so much more, right? Like, because that Richard, he's funny. Like, you really like the guy. 
you don't want to like the guy, but he's really funny and he's really charming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that makes the the moments of horror all the more palpable because you're like, oh shit, I kind of want this guy to win. And he's so evil. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas you don't, that complicity I think is much less present in the Olivier version where you feel like you're with him, but you don't love him, you know? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even right. Cause even in the, like that scene with uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth in the train with McKellen, Mm-hmm. where he's like, look, I don't like this. You don't like this. No one likes this. I'm going to marry my niece. This is not what I signed up for, but it's our only chance. And you're yeah. like, he's got a point. He's got yeah. a real point with this. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, you don't have that with with the Olivier. It's almost more of a – it's more of a, like, by the book, like, oh, yeah, that's – you know, he's hitting all of his points as he goes through – but the McKellen, like the McKellen Richard, you could see how Anne would fall in love with him, even though I don't think she had enough text to make it work. But like, yeah, the Olivier Anne, there's nothing for her to fall in love with. Yeah, he's yeah, like he's he's a little bit he, he's genuinely repulsive. Mm. It's that horrible wig. Well, what I, I mean, didn't it's not good. It's not a great look. Although it is, <laughs> what I didn't realize is that. Obviously, in hindsight, as I'm watching this, I'm like, this Olivier's Richard looks really familiar. And then I realized he's Lord Farquaad from Shrek. Shrek is <laughs> that is clearly <laughs> like that's exactly the same costume with the big dumpy yep. torso and the awful like hair. Like it is copy paste from the Olivier. Richard at the beginning of the show, even with like the same cranberry red costume, it's like crazy. <laughs> that uh, right, but I never, I didn't know that that was a Richard the Third reference until I was sitting there, like, where have I seen this before? <laughs> I am astonished that the McKellen version started as a stage production because it really feels like a movie. Well, I feel, I think. I get the impression, again, based just on reading his manifesto, that like the he was working on the stage production and the stage production toured the world, but like it wasn't any of the same people. Like mm-hmm. he didn't bring the cast over. It sounds like he made a lot of changes from the stage production to the film production. Mm-hmm. So I think I think it was more of he fell in love with the play while he was doing it and then was like oh, we need to make a film adaptation. And he wrote his first treatment and they were like, this isn't going to work as a movie. And then it like went on a whole journey. So I don't think, like, I feel like the Olivier one might have just been, they put a different, like they built a set. Right. (laughs) And they were like, this is what the set looks like now. Go ahead. Oh my God. The the McKellen is a whole different Thing. My like favorite I, thing about the Olivier set is that the tower is literally like 200 meters from the throne. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know how they're planning, how Richard thinks he can get away with plausible de- deniability that nobody got the Clarence message. Like, it's right yeah, there. It's right, it's right there. Well, especially considering in the in the Olivier, Richard is there to say to Brackenberry, like, no, it's all good. It's like, okay, really? That doesn't. Why didn't you just do, you sent the murderers to do it. 
why are you also there? That makes it, and even they, I mean, they kind of even reference it that Brackenberry has that facial expression like, oh, this is messed up. This is not good, but okay, bye. I'm just going to go play solitaire on my laptop until this is over. Bye. <laughs> For them, I mean, about the McKellen as far as how it got from a stage production. I mean, I think my understanding is what, so he did the the play with Richard Eyre and then he was like, I love this. We've been doing it forever. I want to make it into a film. And their original plan was, I think they were going to do it together. Mm-hmm. Um, and Richard Eyre said, look, if you're going to do it on film, then you need to write the screenplay yourself. So Ian McKellen started writing the screenplay while they were still touring. And then he wrote some crazy things in like scenes with hundreds and hundreds of people. Right. And then he realized, oh, shit, this is going to cost money. <laughs> As it usually does, yes. <laughs> and then once he realized that, then they realized, oh, we're going to have to find investors. This is going to take a long time to make. And now we can't have Richard Eyre directed because Richard Eyre is still running the National Theater and right. doesn't have time to come make our film. Um, and then he worked on it with um, Lon Crane. What's his name? Right? Yes, Richard Lon Crane, whose other credits since include Wimbledon, Firewall, Five Flights Up, Great Career. (laughs) (laughs) Yikes. Um, And who, like, knew nothing about Shakespeare. And then that helped Ian McKellen because Ian McKellen didn't really know anything about film. And then they worked on it together and created a screenplay. And I do agree with you that to its credit, like it does a really good job of filling in blanks without dialogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted it to be this big sort of big studio picture that people would watch around the world and that you didn't have to be a Shakespeare fan to like that. It would just work as a film. And I do mm-hmm. think that they achieved that, even though there were sacrifices to like some really great lines, but yeah, it's, but I do think it's interesting. I'm not sure exactly because they also added other things in that I know McKellen said that um, Richard Eyre disapproved of like the telephones and the cars and um, if you're setting it in World War Two. You have to like it's yeah. silly to not. Yeah, well, and they they just had a bare. I think they said it then too when they did it on stage. It's just that they everything was implied. It was a bare stage. Yeah, um, but you can, I mean that's a you that's can't a, do yeah. that on film. No, I agree. I I I don't have a problem with. Anyway, I'm defending. I'm, I'm I'm getting indignant on Ian McKellen's behalf on this. Um, um, but I think it's interesting that he does credit Richard Eyre's stage production in a way that say Ray Fiennes' Coriolanus does not credit whoever the director was when he did Coriolanus on stage for like a year in London and New York. Um, so presumably Ian McKellen kept a lot of the same kinds of interpretations of character Mm -hmm. and ideas that he used with Richard Eyre or he wouldn't have given Richard Eyre credit in the way that Ray Fiennes did not feel the need to give credit to whomever it was he was working with when he did that on stage. Hmm. That seems like more, uh, an extra personal slight, even if it's not a direct. <laughs> it's like, hey, thanks for that year-long production of Coriolanus. That had nothing to do with mine. You earned nothing. Get out. <laughs> Leave your gobstopper at the door on the way Maybe out. Maybe the gonna... director got a special thanks. I don't know. But they do give you really prominent. You do get. I'm sure, probably. I don't know. I wasn't paying that closely. Close to <laughs> titles, but they do really prominently give Richard Eyre credit at the beginning of 
the Richard yeah. the, of the McKellen Richard the Third, and we are calling it the McKellen Richard the Third, even though it was not. He's not the director. He wrote the screenplay, but Long Crane is like a nobody director. Sorry. I think um, it also yeah. Sorry for listening. Think, sorry. <laughs> well, I think it ties into what you were saying about on on your Twelfth Night episode where there's the twelve uh, there the Trevor Nunn and then the oh my god I'm blanking right now the other one Jim Carroll <laughs> yeah but you're not you call oh no the Mark Rylance you were calling it but oh, it's like yeah. for Richard the Third it's like you're always gonna when you have a one character who has that burden like that de- proportion of the lines. Richard the Third is an actor's play. It's not a director's play in a weird way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, that, you know, no matter what Ian McKellen says in his manifesto, you can't turn it into an ensemble piece. It's all about the Richard the Third. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think it only makes sense that we, we think of them as the actors playing Richard the Third and not the not the director. I don't know. I, I'm not sure I agree with that because I'm still calling the Sam Mendes, Kevin Spacey, Richard the Third, the Sam true. Mendes, Richard the and, Third. And I will tell you, based on people who I've worked with who know Kevin Spacey, he is going to be very angry with you for not giving <laughs> him full credit of having that be his Kevin Spacey, Richard the Third. But I think what's different, what's or what's similar, but like even though McKellen did not direct. The film, what's similar between him and Laurence Olivier is that they both saw it through from stage to screen and were mm. part of the adaptation process. So to me, it feels more like McKellen's film than it does Long Crane's film, even though he obviously contributed directorial vision to some degree, because this is all about Ian McKellen's journey. And mm. he did the play and then he did the film and he wrote the screenplay. So he ends up as the auteur of the film in a way that um, well, Olivier does it just because, you know, he stars in it and directed it. So and he's Laurence no, Olivier. Yeah. And he's Laurence Olivier. <laughs> but in a way that might not be the case if... The Kevin Condardo production of Richard III. Right. <laughs> no, you made it clear that the Kevin Condardo production of Richard III is Kevin Condardo and nobody else. <laughs> I can't imagine why the resumes aren't flying in to be a part of this project. I can't imagine what the problem is. You just have to ask Robert Downey Jr. He'll be your reverse. That <laughs> would actually be kind of amazing at this point. Like, if I would was... at this point trust him to maybe do a Richard. As a Richard? Well, look, all the money he's making on all these Avengers movies, he can do literally anything he wants right now. Yeah. He could do it as Iron Man, and it would he's still He's going to delay the Iron Man filming schedule so he can be your reverse. <laughs> If you call him up and you're like, hey, we'd love for you to be in this production. We'd like you to reprise your role as Rivers. Oh, God. We think 20 years later you can get it right. No, in all honesty, I do feel that at this point it's possible that Robert Downey Jr. could pull off a Richard, like an awesome Richard. I mean, if he weren't like throwing in the towel 10 years ago, yeah, maybe. Well, you know, it's almost like he'd actually, at this point in his career, probably be a better Richard II. Is that a crazy thing to say? Because Richard II, as like a spend, as just a playboy, like spending all of England's money. I don't know if I see him as a schemer is what I'm really saying. Um, I think you're selling him short a little bit. Maybe I am. And I also feel like, look. Part of what's fundamental to Richard II is that he's a weak man. Sure. 
That's true. Which which Richard? And if one thing that Robert Downey Jr. cannot convincingly play, it is a weak man. That's true. Look, I'm not saying he can't do Richard the Third, but I'd rather see Oscar Isaac's Richard the <laughs> Third. Yeah, but you'd rather see Oscar Isaac's read a phone book. That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. The next part of the discussion will be available to download on Friday. To keep up with the latest episodes, subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-R-O-W.com. 